Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter Brittany Rigby. Hello. This week we'll be talking about Foxtel switches up its marketing department again. Chunky Media lands Netflix's social content account. The media industry at risk of becoming a predominantly male, middle-aged, white workforce. And the ABC topples news.com.au in Nielsen's digital content ratings. So team, it feels like at least once a month, if not once a week, we're reporting on changes in Foxtel's marketing department. So much so that when we send out our newsletter in the morning, I actually feel like people might think I'm sending one from the month prior instead of the day's news because I'm running out of words to say Foxtel's shakes up its marketing department again, again, again. But this time the subscription content business has added two new roles to its senior leadership team, a chief customer service officer and an executive director of operations and technology. Leslie Portwain, Foxtel's current director of customer service, and Les Wigan, KO's chief operating officer, will be moving into the new roles. And CEO Patrick Delaney said the changes were in order to bring forward plans to reset Foxtel's operating model. Hannah, at my count, this is the 156th reset of (laughs) Foxtel's operating model. It just feels like it's the same thing again. It does. Uh, Foxtel, more than I think any other media business, is a fan of reinventing itself, whether that be its channels lineup, whether that be, you know, its design, whether that be its marketing department. Um, I think what's interesting in the announcement of these two new roles, which are part of the leadership team, I think, so we've just seen, I think it was eight marketers left over the last, say, six months, the majority of which have not been replaced. Some of those were redundancies. Some of those were people who left on their own, of their own will. Um, so it's a rough time for the business. And I think it's interesting that they've tried to turn that around by announcing these two new roles, which are being filled from within. They're not external hires. Um, so What's up next for Foxtel? They're kind of looking to replicate the success of KO. KO is kind of a bright spot in their business at well, this that's, point. That's what's partly interesting about this announcement is Les Wigan uh, has been sort of credited with a lot of KO's success and KO is their more premium sort of sports subscription service that you that you can stream and the customer feedback on that is much more positive than the general customer feedback associated with the more traditional Foxtel box. And it's said that the tech platform's much better and, and they've got just more enthusiastic customers. So I can see why they'd want somebody who was so involved in KO to come over and try and replicate that for Foxtel's soon to launch entertainment streaming product, which wants to sort of leverage off KO. But I don't... I, we were talking about this this morning. No doubt Les has done a fantastic job with KO, but would you want to step away from that when KO is that bright spot, as you said, Hannah, and now Les has got to go and try and replicate that? 
I, I just don't know if I'd be up for the challenge. Yeah, it's tough. And if you look at News Corp's results, which came out a couple oh, last week, I think, was reporting season is destroying me. But um, <laughs> there was a 3% rise overall in Foxtel subscribers. Basically, all of that was down to the success of KO, which they're now rolling in with Foxtel alongside uh, Foxtel now as well. And one of the things that they drew attention to in that announcement was this new entertainment streaming platform, which will replicate KO, but for entertainment. My biggest concern there is KO has been incredibly successful because of the rights it has. It's been incredibly successful because of the offering it has in the market, which doesn't isn't replicated by anything else. Whereas if you look at whatever their new entertainment streaming platform will be, A, depending on what type of content it is, you've already got Netflix in the area, obviously alongside Stan, alongside Amazon, alongside Disney Plus, etc. You've also got those kind of niche ones like Hey You, which is all the reality content. So I just think people who are keen to watch entertainment content, that's been Foxtel's biggest issue because obviously it's lost the Disney content now. There are big clouds on the horizon where HBO is concerned with HBO looking to launch in Australia, which could mean it would lose all those big flagship shows. Game of Thrones, obviously, last year was a saving grace in (laughs) Foxtel's lineup. Foxtel itself does have some good programming. It's still got the Showtime shows. It's still got, you know, some of those great shows. But I think the question really is when we've gotten to a point where the streaming landscape is so cluttered, it feels like every second minute somebody's pitching a bloody op-ed about how cluttered the streaming landscape is. Is there really room for another platform, which if we're looking at pricing will be more expensive than the rest of it's replicating the KO model. That's just going to have more entertainment content, which is what we've already got so much of. And speaking of pitching op-eds about, streaming services i believe somebody contacted you the other day pitching me as an author would you like an op-ed from vivian kelly to which i mean it was a surprise to me certainly i turned it down very quickly though because i'm not interested in the vivian answer was Kelly's absolutely content. not <laughs> look let, let's be real i would not have delivered it on time anyway so you just would have been uh, left underwhelmed and i think uh, you make a good point though there with KO and being so reliant on the sporting rights that it has in that even KO and Foxtel admit that, you know, after the Rugby World Cup and after certain key sports, their numbers do drop off because it's so much easier to get rid of your KO than it is to cancel a lock-in sort of Foxtel contract that has the box and all the wiring and stuff. Yeah, there was actually a really interesting comment in the News Corp results where they said that during the cricket season, KO had seen some users fall off because, and this is a direct quote, cricket is not as compelling to Australian viewers as AFL and NRL is. Basically, love them just calling cricket a boring sport there. Um, Not only that, the CEO of News Corp, Robert Thompson, called it antediluvian, and I had to Google that (laughs) because I didn't know what antediluvian meant. So, it was quite a scathing assessment of, of cricket all in all, considering that they, you know, do a lot of marketing around cricket and the fact that you can watch it on KO. Yeah, and I especially think considering Sevens come under fire a lot for its coverage of the BBL, there has been a lot of like, oh, it was better on 10, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody I've heard talk about watching BBL on KO has said that the service is great, the coverage is great, the commentating is great etc etc so i think it's really interesting that they're then like oh 
cricket the worst sport ever. Um, but off the back of that, they are saying that winter is their biggest selling season. So they are saying, you know, with the NRL, obviously the AFL, um, and those sports are expecting figures to go back up. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that actually works. But with such a volatile business model, you do wonder how that would replicate into the entertainment space. And if anyone is interested at home, antediluvian means of or belonging to the time before the biblical flood. And an alternative definition is ridiculously old fashioned. <laughs> so the CEO of News Corp, Robert Thompson, on a call with investors calling cricket antediluvian when so much of its product marketing throughout summer relies on this ridiculously old fashioned sport was Quite, quite a statement. Someone in KO publicity died that day. <laughs> Up next, Junkie Media's partners with Netflix on social content. Junkie Media, the youth-focused publisher owned by outdoor business O Media, has landed the social content account for Netflix in Australia and New Zealand. The win, which came late last year after a competitive pitch process, will see the publisher hire four new roles initially before building an editorial team focused on the account. Hannah, I mean, I know that Junkie already do quite a lot with brands in the sponsored content space and and with partnerships and whatnot. You know, they've also got AWOL, the travel product. But what kind of content will they be doing with Netflix? How will this work? Is Junkie being more of an agency than a publisher here or is this just the new way? Um, I think it's probably the new way. Um, They're hiring four roles initially off the back of this, uh, a managing editor, a news editor, a community editor and an AV editor. Um, underneath those, I think the job description for the managing editor, I think it was said that they part of their role would be building an editorial team. So obviously they're planning on more hires in the future. Um, but all those roles had a very specific focus on social. Um, and the announcement that came from publisher Tim Duggan about this was that they would be working specifically with Netflix on its social content. So that's anything across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. However, there was also in there um, a couple of mentions of long form content, which I would suggest doesn't naturally live on social. So I'm not quite sure what that'll take. Um I did obviously approach both Junkie and Netflix, and while they did confirm they are working together, which was pretty obvious from the job ads, <laughs> neither of them could comment on the nature of the relationship yet. So I'm sure in the coming months we'll see a lot more come out about it. Um, but it's interesting, and I think it's really it's such a great win for Junkie because four new fairly senior members to your team for a small publisher is a great growth in one go, especially if that then comes with more of an editorial team. And I think if... Netflix are aiming at that junkie audience, you know, that millennial audience. Junkie are already so embedded in that space. They're already doing all the listicles. They're already doing all the Netflix reviews. They're already all over that content. I think this is quite – this isn't a partnership that shocked me. This is a very natural partnership. I'm wondering if it's going to be, you know, four reasons why you should watch the Good Place type content or if it's going to do deeper dives into, you know, the streaming – market and the state of content and the state of programming. I think what Junkie does well is it cuts the line between those two things. I think if Netflix maybe just wanted that 
for reasons why these cats will make you laugh out loud content. <laughs> they could have gone anywhere. I think what Junkie does so well is they they've got their finger on the pulse of what people want from a deep dive as well as what people want from an easy read. So it will be interesting to see what form the content takes. Um, I had a quick look at Netflix's social accounts, which are obviously currently existing before the partnership. And it was a lot of, um, felt like one a one person social team just kind of tweeting to a schedule so it'll be really interesting to see how that changes also this is a good reflection on how netflix is trying to grow in australia so they launched an actual office here last year they did already have some people working remotely in australia before that but they launched a proper office in sydney last year um, and they brought across a couple of people, including Oz Film CEO Deborah Richards, who is heading up production policy there. They have been pretty vocal about looking to improve on the Australian content they offer. That's a big piece of feedback they get is that they don't focus enough on Australian content. And obviously, there's all that back and forth with the free to airs about what streamers have to do in that space and what they don't. And it gives Stan, which is owned by Nine, such a point of difference when they're talking to consumers and talking to the the market that Stan does create a lot of original Australian content that gives, you know, Australian jobs and showcases Australian talent both on and off the screen. So if Netflix starts doing that with those really big budgets, it could definitely eat into Stan's point of difference and, and Stan's audience. So I'm sure that they're keeping an eye on that. Yeah, I agree with Hannah as well in that I think watching what happens with the long form content will be really interesting. You don't get Junkie just to send out some tweets. Like that's not what Junkie's good at. That's not where their audience lives. Netflix's social channels have Netflix's audience currently. If they want to tap into Junkie's audience, surely it makes sense for that long form content to live on Junkie. Obviously, as you said, Viv, they've got AWOL with Qantas and the cusp with Westpac and do kind of sponsored stuff in-house. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like and if it still has the junkie tone of voice or if Netflix's tone of voice is slightly different. I'm I'm keen to see how that plays out. Yeah, one particular point in those job ads that did say you need to replicate the junkie tone of voice or you need to be across the junkie tone of voice. I would think in a decision you make like this, I would we don't have the details of who was up for the pitch, but I would imagine if you're looking at a company like Junkie, which has a very well-established voice and you're looking at maybe an agency, you're picking Junkie because you want that. Yeah. You want everything they have already and you just want that replicated but for your brand. And I think what will be really interesting is if this is replicated by other big businesses, especially big businesses coming from the US into this market, to tap into that okay, who's already successful here? Who do people already like here? How can we get that kind of flavor across our content? That would be really interesting. And ultimately, Junkie is pretty clear in that they're like, we know millennial audiences, we know Gen Z audiences with Punky. So it's interesting for brands to be going straight to that to publishers that already have built up those audiences that already have a tone of voice that's connecting with those audiences rather than, yeah, having kind of intermediary agencies dealing with publishers on their behalf. It's an interesting model and, yeah, I think you're right in that it could be something we see more of. Up next, the media industry struggles with entrenched gender and diversity imbalance. 
Surprise, say surprise. Four white women in a podcasting <laughs> studio. Well, look, that, that feeds in well to uh, how I was going to open this section anyway, which was a new study from the University of South Australia has found a 21.8% gender pay gap in Australian broadcasting, which to me sort of fundamentally missed out on being new in terms of being new news, you know, the first three letters of the four-letter word, um, in that it's just not groundbreaking to me. I sort of felt like everybody already knew that, but it's astounding how when you do stories like this that are researched by professors or doctors or whatever, backed by data, backed by evidence, and you'll still get that person that hops online and says, yeah, but I know a female who's paid more than a male and therefore this study is bonkers. What about nurses though? Yeah, it's just, it's it's unbelievable. And, you know, drawing comparisons that don't even deserve to be drawn, like a, a male regional broadcaster versus a female in, in totally different time slots in the city, but, you know, that's just the internet for you. And as I've spoken of pre- previously, I can't fix that. But alongside the unsurprising gender pay gap is the research showing that there is an entrenched gender and diversity imbalance at the senior levels, which means the industry is at risk of becoming a predominantly male, middle-aged white workforce. I mean, that's their words, not mine. Uh, I, I don't think the industry is at risk of that. I think the industry is already in that situation. I like that they said then projecting their views on Australia. And that's definitely yes, already happening. That is already there. And that's what the Australian media industry is. Also, I'm aware that we're now projecting our views onto you. So there is no need to email me to, to point that out. Feel, feel free to just keep that, keep that to yourself. Um, Brittany, beyond these unstartling fun facts, what else did the report show? I mean, it was all unstartling and depressing, but expected. The The stat that I really zoomed in on and found interesting was that 80% of radio presenters are men. And while when you think about it, you're like, yeah, I guess most radio presenters would be men, 80% seems an extraordinarily high figure that must be that presumably that's australia wide yeah Yeah. because if you look at the metro markets it's either a man and a woman or like there aren't that many cases where a radio station has just men unless possibly triple m but yeah i think it's it's bumped up but you know there's kyle and jackie o on kiss fm in sydney and there are examples where it's 50 50 but that would be thrown out by the likes of Triple M's Hot Breakfast with male lineups everywhere. Or Christian the, O'Connell yeah. in Melbourne, oh, huge number of, and Three AW, yeah, and all those. male yeah. talkback hosts. But I, I was shocked by eighty percent because that seemed very high. Um, the research has kind of yeah shown what we already knew, which is that more men or less diversity equals you know less diverse views more like there's more likeliness that stereotypes will continue to be presented because those stereotypes aren't being challenged uh interestingly there are more women than men in radio but behind this behind the scenes they're behind the scenes yeah exactly so yeah i mean it's it's interesting to see it 
broken down in terms of broadcasting specifically, but it wasn't hugely surprising in terms of that pay gap and what it means for the state of radio, the state of TV. So the the study was across TV, film and radio. Yeah, and again, I know that people will shout out about Jackie O's incredible paycheck as an example of how this study is flawed and how, you know, if you just focus on your job, not your gender, you'll be fine. But, you know, eye rolls to that view aside, the report found that just 1.2% of female journalists in those sectors that Brittany's just mentioned earn more than 144000 a year compared to 9.8% of men. So there is a gap there. And as Brittany mentioned, a, a huge proportion of the female journalists behind the scenes in these sectors are female but they obviously just not many of them can get past that 144 number. I don't actually know why they picked 144,000. Yeah. That's quite a strange Is number it to a choose. level or something? It might be because that's um, – I don't know what it's at with Fair Work at the moment, but the cutoff income to not qualify for unfair dismissal, which is considered like the high income oh, bracket, yes. is yep. around that. So it may have been bumped up to 144. Last time it was about 140, I think. Um, but yeah, you're right. The reason why we talk about Jackie O's incredible paycheck as opposed to Kyle's is because hers is more unusual. Yeah, it's an anomaly. And it wasn't, it wasn't always like that. I mean, it's always been Kyle and Jackie O, but she wasn't being paid the same as him. And we see that replicated across the industry, across broadcasting with women who are absolutely in the peak of their careers and some of the most well-known women in the country. I mean, Lisa Wilkinson faced the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, sure, you can point to those examples and say, this is great, but the fact is, is that they're rarities. Also, she's been really clear on the record before that Kyle does the negotiating for their pay salaries and that when they moved across to Kiss, he negotiated how much they would both be on and that he was the reason that she got equal pay. Yeah, so they've got uh, different managers now different talent managers but they did used to operate in the same way and you know I've heard Kyle Sanderland speak and he's even crowed about the fact that he helped Jackie get equal pay and that he demanded it and when he demanded it it happened now you know there's two sides to to every story particularly when Kyle's involved but you know the fact that he's even spruiking that story sort of is case is case in point I think um what's perhaps more concerning the thing I always think, especially in the media industry, is we're quite aware of the gender imbalance as Viv kind of, as you opened with, that's not a surprise. I think it's the diversity imbalance that I find really concerning because it's easy for white people to forget that there's a diversity imbalance. It's obviously not easy for people who are from diverse backgrounds to forget. But I think when you look at an industry which is very, especially if you're looking at the forward facing people, if you're not necessarily looking at the behind the scenes people, if you're looking forward at the, if you're looking at the people you see on TV, the people you hear on the radio, an overwhelming majority of them are white. And I think that's what's more concerning in this industry. And I think reports like this, which kind of come in hard from the gender pay gap. Obviously, they also address the diversity imbalance. But I think we maybe need to kind of focus on that a bit more and pump that up a lot more because work is obviously being done on the gender pay gap. It's obviously not where it should be. But 
we are aware of that issue and we are working towards it, I think a lot more needs to be done, and especially in the media industry, to address diversity. Particularly when you consider the role that media plays, it 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 completely matters who's telling stories because that completely changes which stories are being told, how they're being told. And I think I was really struck even trying to get into the industry at how structurally it's completely built against people of a certain class, against people of diverse backgrounds of, I mean, I, I have a law background as well. And even compared to that, the which faces similar problems, the the whole idea of you have to know someone to get your foot in the door and it's not what you know, it's who you know is so stark in this industry and that automatically means that talent pipelines are so narrow and you're completely right that it it has to start there as well and it has to that there has to be more done there. Up next, record-breaking ABC audiences drive it to the top of Nielsen's digital content ratings. Lastly, an incredibly good month for traffic on ABC News websites has helped the broadcaster topallnews.com.au from the top of Nielsen's digital content ratings for January. It's the first time the broadcaster has topped 11 million in unique audience and the first time in the latest iteration of the DCR that news.com.au hasn't been in the top spot. This comes off the back of in December, and I think we did speak about it on the podcast, um, what was usually considered to be a quiet month for content. Almost all websites reported content growth across the board. Now the ABC has shot above news.com.au. Obviously, 9.com.au is in there as well, um, but the ABC has topped both of those, toppling news.com.au from the top spot in a first in several years. I think this is really interesting because – one month of growth is not particularly surprising and it's why these sorts of ratings and rankings and actually any ratings and rankings are really tough to report on month to month because you don't know what someone can have going on that month, especially if we look at, say, radio. One promotion that's running across a month can completely skew the data. I think in December, the bushfires were obviously raging. We were right in the middle of that crisis. And so it made a lot of sense to me that the ABC was sitting at the top because in my mind, if you go somewhere for news, you're going to the ABC, especially in rural locations, especially in regional areas. I think it's particularly interesting that they've managed to continue that trajectory across January and not only continue it, but to have such incredible numbers and to knock news.com.au off the top spot is really interesting. Britt, do you think that that's a reflection of what kind of news people were looking for during that time? Totally. And you mentioning how a promotion, for example, on radio can impact radio ratings made me think the fact that the ABC has no commercial influence in that way, you're not going there for the ads, you're not going there for the promotion, you're not going there for sponsored content makes the win all the more impressive, particularly when it, you know, it's it's going up against news.com.au. It also makes me think that it's it's a great it's a great thing for the ABC to be able to tout that it's achieved this. Um, 
I saw yesterday that Senator James McGrath said that the ABC has to show how it can manage its existing budget before asking for a bigger one, which uh, copped quite a lot of criticism. And I think the fact that the ABC can say, we're delivering news when Australia needs it most, we're delivering news where Australia needs it most, and that pays off. That does mean eyeballs, that does mean readers, it does mean, you know, listeners for its radio stations. That's that's hugely important for the ABC and hopefully that is reflected in its budget, although, although we know for years and years that hasn't been the case. Yeah, if we look at the numbers that have come from January, um, ABC News websites went up 11% month on month. So it's 11.19 million in unique audience. So they were sitting at 10 million in December, which itself was a 5% rise from the month before. It's not even, they can't even say that it's because news.com.au had a bad month because they didn't. They stayed really steady on the month before. It was like barely a notable move. I think it was less than 1%. And 9.com.au also, I mean, they dropped, but so, so slightly. So news.com is reporting 10.5 million. Nine is reporting uh, 9.3 million. I think that's perhaps more reflective of how good this is for the ABC. I think if news.com had say fallen 30% or something really dramatic had happened there, you could attribute that to something. You could say, okay, well, they had a bad month or as has been the case in the past, Nielsen maybe wasn't very accurate with their ratings. I don't know that when everyone else is holding fairly steady, you can say, oh, this is an anomaly. And it would be really, I mean, I'm really interested to see what things are like next month because obviously in February we've seen more weather conditions we've seen similar stuff to what we saw in january so i think it'll be interesting to see if this trend can continue also it it seems more impressive in light of the fact that the the traffic has to be in large part driven by the bushfire coverage if you think about january it's often a quieter month because people are on holidays when you're on holidays you're disconnecting from the news rather than trying to avidly keep up with it. So, I mean, it's impressive for news.com.au to still be holding steady and and other publishers to still be doing really well. I think a lot of it is driven by the bushfire coverage and the fact that people are swarming to the ABC speaks, you know, hugely to trust and accuracy and, you know, yeah, overall – quality that you know that you're going to get there so it, i i don't think that there's any way that you can say it's not a fair and square win as you said and yeah a, a big big success for the abc and if we look a bit wider across the board um december as i had said was a fairly good month for all websites but january told a really interestingly different story so the sydney morning herald and the age both dropped whereas which saw seven news take the fourth place for the first time. They jumped up 10%. The Daily Mail also jumped up 13%. And The Guardian had, I think, the best month of traffic it's ever had. It also went up 10%. So that's kind of interesting as well. If we remove, say, seven news from that equation, because seven news has been showing pretty good growth month on month. Um, the Guardian, especially not only the bushfire stuff, but also the coronavirus coverage, 
it's kind of interesting. I just, I don't want to call it too soon because I feel like then I'm going to get next month's ratings and everything's going to be down and news.com is going to have soared back to the top. But I think this is such an interesting reflection on where people go for air quotes, serious journalism. And I Mm. think it's really interesting as a reflection if we look at the conversation that's happening at the moment around the Murdoch media and around maybe a bias that is or isn't being shown by it. I really would love to know if when we look back on this time, this is a reflection of, okay, when serious things are happening in the world, when there is serious threats, these are the people that we turn to for news. Yeah, you're right about The Guardian. Um, It had another record month and they're saying that it now makes them the fastest growing publisher of last year. So again, with its bushfire coverage, we saw, we, we discussed last month, it and the ABC had huge jumps in December and continuing that in January. That's all from us for the week. But before we go, for those of you in the PR and comms world, the Mumbrella Comms Con $100 discount on the early bird sale ends next Thursday on the 20th of February. Leading names on the bill include President Trump's former Deputy Press Secretary and Edelman's VP of US Public Affairs, Lindsay Walters, plus The Guardian Media Group UK, Coca-Cola South Pacific, Red Havas, OPR, CHE Proximity, United Nations Association of Australia and Koala are among those brands confirmed to hit the stage. Tickets are selling fast, so go to mumbrella.com.au slash comscon for more information. Thanks for joining me, team. Thanks. Thanks.